Part of the genius of Jesus was his ability to capture profound, beautiful, sometimes complex realities in a simple story, in the unfolding of a spoken drama, in what you might call a parable. Jesus was able with the parable of the sower to capture the complex realities of the human heart as different people receive God's word. That with the parable of the lost sheep, he's able to capture the reality of God's devotion to the individual. That with the parable of the prodigal son, the lavishness of God's love as he, as he lays it on, on people who are, who are undeserving despite whatever sort of baggage we might bring to the table. It's a beautiful thing. It is the genius of Jesus. And today, I want to ask a question, and I want to talk about a parable, but a different kind of parable. Today, it isn't about parables of Jesus necessarily, but as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, as we continue through this letter written by Paul to the church in Ephesus, and think specifically about marriage... I want to think not about marriage in cultural terms, not about marriage with us at the center, because we're often tempted to think of marriage as really a, a seeking out self-fulfillment, tempted to make marriage a humanistic, about a humanistic happily ever after. But today I want to ask the question, what if marriage is itself kind of a parable? A story told by God through husbands and wives to the world that points the world that points our children to a far more profound, more beautiful reality. To teach a watching world truths about their creator and the ways he's chosen to relate to his creation. If this were the case, perhaps some of us would treat marriage differently or at least think about it differently. We're gonna be in Ephesians chapter five. If you have your Bible, open up. I'm gonna pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give me clarity on what is for many of us a heavy topic. I feel, the, I feel the heaviness of it now. I pray, Lord, that you would speak clearly, that this room would be receptive, that we would have soft hearts to receive what I believe is good and from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, just some, some, some clarifiers for everybody. Uh, you don't have to be married to understand and value understanding God's point for marriage. Just specifically, if at some point in your life you probably end up discipling someone who's married. So if you're single, today is just as much for you as it is for everybody else. Secondly, I just want to point out that people in this room come from so many different backgrounds when it comes to marriages. As children, there are people in this room who grew up watching a wonderful, God-glorifying marriage, and there are people who saw nothing but brokenness when they saw marriage. There are people who, right now, have experienced the pain of divorce coming out of marriage. People who, maybe in this moment, your marriage is thriving, and for others, not so much. And so as we talk about this, I just gotta admit up front, there's a lot I can't say today. Like, I'm going to go through, but like, I can't plunge the depths of each, of each person's issues in a single sermon on nine verses from Ephesians chapter 5. But my hope is that some, we can glean some things along the way as we venture through together. So I'm going to read 
straight through Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. It says, and I just, I'm going to admit, for some of us, especially you haven't been a part of the church or first time back or whatever, some of this is going to be awkward language. We're going to get there, I promise. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. All right? Some of you just turned off right there. Turn back on, please. Because, trust me, we'll get there. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy cleansing her with a washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church since we are members of his body. Just going to point out, dudes, you got like six verses. The ladies got three. Thirty-one, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Two more verses. But I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. We've got three categories that we're going to go through today. One, what God in the Bible does not say about husbands and wives. We're going to clear some of that nonsense up. Two, what it does say about husbands and wives. And three, what marriage is supposed to say to the world and to us about Jesus and his bride. First, what God isn't saying about husbands and wives. Number one, women are inferior. At no point does Paul ever say that the dignity, worth, contribution, or capacity of women is inferior to men. And unfortunately, this and other texts have been used to bludgeon women into horrible conditions over the years. Sometimes people go to Genesis and like, well, when Eve was created, she was called a helper. And if you go, because I did this this week, and you look up that Hebrew word for helper, and I read all 21 instances in which that word was used in the Old Testament, you know what you find is more than half of the times that word helper is used, it refers to God <laughs> helping his people. And then, of course, our world will say, if you are someone who follows, if you are someone who chooses to let someone lead you, that means you are weak, that means you are inferior. And if you are going to take from this text... But choosing to let someone lead you means you are weak. Then you, not God, you are the one calling billions of people around the world weak and inferior. You're not going to get that from Scripture. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. We're both image bearers. Next, the Bible does not say that abuse and domination are God's design. You are not going to find that here. And for so many people, their experience in the church or their experience with the word ends up playing out as kind of this experience with misogyny and oppression. When the focal point of the entire biblical narrative is literally God become flesh to die for you. Our world is full of people who have used the scripture as an excuse to reach for control and power. And if they didn't have the Bible, they'd figure out another way to do it. 
But just because we know there's abusive leadership doesn't mean we get rid of the concept of leadership. We don't fix a problem by erasing the category. Instead, we look at Jesus as an example of real leadership characterized by tender, sacrificial, self-giving love. Now, two people I'm gonna address briefly, and I wish I could spend more, but one, there are people in this room who have experienced abuse at the hand of someone who was supposed to care and love them. And that may be happening now. And I just want, if that's you, that in the church, your safety is a priority to us. You need to come and you need to talk to somebody. That needs to be revealed, that needs to be handled. You're not alone. So don't feel like you have to be stuck and do it alone. Secondly, if you are in this room and you are a person who does harm to your family, if you are a person who abuses your family, you've kept this private, you have not confessed this to anyone, You find your own personal reputation to be far more valuable than the well-being of those that God has entrusted into your care. And that is something that you do. I'm gonna say something, this might offend some of you, but I'm pretty confident, and you know what, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money, you're not a Christian. My greatest concern for you, if this is you, is not a legal concern, it is not a relational concern, it is an eternal concern. And there is no guarantee for any of us that we get tomorrow. And so I say this with a sense of urgency to you now. Because you very well may be one of those people that goes before Jesus and quoting him who says, Lord, Lord, and he says, get away from me, you doers of lawlessness. I do not know you. And we take that serious. One of the most radical parts of the gospel, church, one of the most radical parts of the gospel is that when Jesus came to die for the church, to die for the world, he didn't just die for the oppressed, and he didn't just die for the abused. He gave his life for the very men who hammered the nails through his wrists. And for those who've entrusted their life to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I encourage you, don't fear man, fear God. And that which we cover in this life, God reveals. But that which we uncover, Christ covers with his blood. Abuse and domination are not a part of God's design. Three, submission is only for women. Yo, we see submission throughout all of Scripture, starting with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15. So when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him. Matthew 26. That Jesus says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as my will, but as you will. That Jesus himself submitted to the Father. Submission isn't just a thing for Jesus, but really for all believers in lots of different capacities, including men. In Romans 8. It says the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law, meaning that to be a believer is to submit yourself to God's law. Ephesians 5, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, that all believers in some sense as brothers and sisters in Christ are called to be the kind of people that submit to one another. Titus 3.1, 
Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Saying this in a time when they were under a far more oppressive government regime. 1 Peter 5, likewise, those who you are younger, be subject to the elders. Same language. Submitting to the elders of the church. And then finally, humility is not only for men. The text tells men to be sacrificially loving and women to respect their husbands, submit. Women, men aren't the only ones to be humble. In Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility considers others more important than yourselves. And he goes on to give Christ as the example for that. You're not going to find these things in Scripture. You're going to find these accusations in the world, but this is not the story of our God and his plan. But people would ask still, wait, wait, wait a second. If all men are still supposed to be submitting throughout their lives in different ways and women are supposed to be sacrificially loving in different ways, why in this text do they specifically pick those two things for these roles? I'll give you an analogy, illustration I thought of this week. Think of a baseball team. Everyone on the baseball team has to know how to throw the ball and catch the ball. All believers are supposed to be able to submit and to sacrificially love. But there's two roles on a baseball team in which those two things are amplified. The pitcher and the catcher. Now think about this. We call the pitcher a pitcher even though every time he throws the ball, he has to receive it. And before he can throw it, he has to catch it. We still call him the pitcher. We focus on that as the role. And he has that specific role with one other specific player on the team who's opted into that position called the catcher. But before the, after the catcher catches, what does the catcher have to do? Throw. It's amplified. And in the same way, God uses these two things, amplifying them in these particular roles in order to get to what our ultimate point will be, teach us something about Jesus and his bride. Point number two. So what is God saying about marriage? I found this quote. I don't know who wrote it. It's not me. Someone smarter than me. But I liked it. It's from Desiring God, just their general blog. God designed marriage as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman for their mutual joy, the good of society, and the procreation of children. Marriage ultimately displays the glory and grace of God by picturing the unbreakable relationship between Christ and his church. So we're going to move on. Husbands, we're starting with you. And I got more for you because Paul had more for you. Husbands should lay down their lives, sacrificially giving of themselves for the good of their wives and to the glory of God. Look at this scripture again. Husbands, love your wives, not as you please, not when they deserve it. Doesn't say when you feel good. It doesn't say when you want to get some. No, love your wives what? Just as Christ loved the church. The church didn't do anything to earn it. Husbands, love your wives. It says that Christ gave himself for her to make her holy and cleansing, that we are to love our wives in such a way that is for their good, even when it costs us our time, our energy. 
In the same way, verse 28, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. I'm going to give three practical examples. I know some of you want some practical stuff to walk away with. We're America, we're pragmatic. Let's get practical. As Pastor Frank would say once upon a time, a few examples. One, husbands. This means we're to serve our wives, even when it's hard. When you get home at the end of the day, and whether your wife works or whether she stays at home all day, when you get home at the end of the day, husbands and wives, what you do is you have a first impression that will often shape the rest of your evening. And husbands, when you get home, and let's say the house is full of chaos, it is full of noise, things are not clean or orderly, they are not as you would want or expect them to be. The first thing you say is not a self-serving comment about how disappointed you are, but how can I help? That's dying to self. How was your day? From time to time. In fact, when I counsel couples, when I when perform wedding ceremonies, I, I give couples a list of questions they ask every single week, and one of them is, how can I serve you this next week? Dudes, I've been married 12 years I still don't understand so much about my beautiful wife. I can't get in her head. I'm not even going to try. So you got to ask, how can I serve you today? That's important. Second, lead. Simple, yet hard. This is something that godly men need to do. I got my boys up here in the front row, all right? Godly men do godly things and, and godly things are hard. That's right. That's something we do on repeat a lot, but it's what we gotta do. Make the spiritual vitality of your home a priority, men. Make prayer a priority, men. Make reading the word a priority, men. Make time together with your, your wife face-to-face -face with the remote down and sports off a priority. Lead. Finally, men, own the healing where necessary. What do I mean by that? Nine times out of ten, when I sit down with a couple who feels like they are on their very last rope in their marriage, the wife has spent a year or two trying to drag her husband to counseling. What if someone had been there two years prior because the husband wasn't so darn stubborn? Now, I'm not saying women don't have issues, but I'm saying men, when there's an issue, lead. Your privacy is not worth the destruction of your marriage. So lead. That's important. My kids up here in the front row, like, you are responsible for holding me accountable to this too. I'm talking to you. Say, Sai, I'm talking to you. When you don't see me doing this, you can call me out. Your kids might be your kids, but in another sense, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And my kids have called me out. Finally, ladies, what does this look like for you? 
It says, wives, verse 22, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. What does this practically look like? It goes on at the end to say, and the wife is to respect her husband, giving us a little bit of insight, right, into part of what that means. Women's, women should let their husbands lead. Number two, let their husbands lead. What does respecting a husband look like kind of in the midst of that? Lots of questions pose up. What if my husband isn't worthy of that? What if they've done this? Zach, you don't understand my story. You don't see what they've done. That's true. I'm going to give two practical things for you to digest. Because I've spoken to a lot of women about this, and I've asked this question to God-fearing women. So this, I, right now, I'm the conduit for older, wiser women to you. So if you disagree with this, you're disagreeing with them. <laughs> One, when things get hard in marriage, gossip doesn't make them better. Seeking out a person to listen and pray and provide counsel is one thing. Looking for someone to be as upset or disappointed in your husband as you is completely different. That's planting seeds of destruction and it's not helpful. Early on, me and my wife got to a really, really terrible fight, one of, one of our biggest, and I was mainly at fault. I think I've shared this, I was mainly at fault. And so my wife went and she had a person that she went to vent to, and I remember, I heard about this more after the fact, but I remember when we came back together, she actually apologized to me first. And then at some point she relayed to me that this person who listened and prayed and gave counsel said, ooh, Katrina, you did this wrong. You've got to go apologize. That is a person who cared deeply about my wife but cared more about her marriage. That's important. This wasn't an occasion of abuse on my part. It was an occasion definitely of me sinning against my wife. Forgiveness was needed. Healing was needed. We need those people in our lives. But two, what if your husband isn't leading, ladies? Encourage your husband in his gifting and call them out to him. Your husband doesn't lead. I'll tell you, it's very easy for men. I've talked to many men who've just kind of shrunk away because they feel steamrolled at times. Sometimes men need prompting. And I would encourage you, if your husband isn't someone stepping into leading, to call out the way God's gifted him to him and remind him. Remind him of the good things you see in him and do so gently. And in all of these things, we remember that marriage is so much more than us. You know, it's fascinating in verse 32, it says, the mystery is profound. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Remember in the beginning, I said marriage is like a parable. It's like a theological play. It's like a drama. And when God holds casting calls for marriage, he has one role called Jesus. And he's casting a man for that role. And he has another role called the church, and he's casting a woman for that role. 
And he wants them to come together for this role because in the art of marriage, they will, through this theological drama, tell the world about the beauty of God's commitment to his church. It's a theological play or drama. Now, I could see some of you being like, well, I only went for that main role because there was a kissing scene and I really wanted, I had the hots for the, the lady playing Juliet. Some people, and I know there are people in this room, you're like, yep, we got married because we just wanted to have sex. <laughs> Paul talks about you burning with passion, that that's one of the reasons. It's not the reason to get married. A play probably won't go all that well if the only reason the two people in the play at the front is because they want to hook up with the other. It is so much bigger, which brings us to our final point what marriage says about the church. You have three things. The first is this. The church is a bride of which we are part, not a prostitute of which we are not. So all of this language that Paul's used to talk about the nature in which men and women within a God-glorifying marriage are to participate in. But then he says, this mystery is profound, and it refers to Jesus and the church, that we as a church are a bride, that we are a bride of Jesus. We're not a prostitute. And that language prostitute gets used all throughout scripture. If you prefer the word harlot because you're a King James person, that's fine. You can use that too. But the church is not place you come to throw a little bit of money, hope it puts out for you, and then leave till you get back. That's a prostitute. Church is a bride. It says in Ephesians 5, 25, 26, Christ died to cleanse, make us holy. He came to do something with this group of people who are committed to him and committed to one another. And that means... If you're going to be cleansed, what does that assume about what you were like before? you dirty. Yo, we're a mess. The church is a mess. It is full of broken, imperfect, messy people, which is precisely why Jesus had to come to give his life for her. And what we think about Jesus' bride ultimately says something about what we think of Jesus. Jesus came to die for the bride. And faith isn't meant to be something we do on our own. Listen to this. I've heard so many times, particularly with younger people, but sometimes with older, you know, I love Jesus, but I'm just so done with the church. It's like you saying, Zach, I really enjoy hanging out with me, but I am sick of your wife. Every time Jesus says, I love you, it's in the context of a y'all. When the scripture talks about Jesus dying for you, it is in the context, for my southern Midwestern folk, it is in the context of a y'all. And if that y'all mattered to Jesus, it should matter to us. Next, what marriage says about the church, the church is a people to whom we commit, not a product that we consume. And this is why in this series, we're talking about this, this covenant partnership. We've actually been 
Very particular about that language. I'll explain a little bit about that now. Particular in the language for two reasons, right? We chose the word partner and we chose the word covenant. The church is not a club or a service provider. And because the word membership has those negative connotations, we've chosen not to go with that. Because the church is not a club or a service provider. You show up, pay dues, get something, leave. That's not who we are. I'm not dogging other churches who use that language, but we're choosing not to because of the cultural and linguistic baggage that it carries. And we've chosen the word covenant because a covenant is different from a contract. You sign a contract, you can sign a contract with someone you despise, with someone you hate and don't want to spend any time with, someone you don't care for. But your signature on a contract is committing to merely the terms. We use the word covenant because we're not just committing to terms, we're committing to people. This, we covenants with God, the new covenant in Jesus' blood. This is a commitment between God and his people, between persons. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The church is a people to whom we commit, not a product that we consume. And then finally... My last one. The church isn't perfect, but is nonetheless profoundly and perfectly loved. This analogy that Paul uses of marriage is one that I'm sure he knows falls flat at times because people fall flat. In my own, in, in my own life, there's been four or five marriages between my biological parents. There's been brokenness there. I love my mom. My mom's a woman who fears God. She loves the scripture. She's a prayer warrior. Mom, I love you. There's brokenness there. There's people in this room who've experienced that brokenness as well. The church is full of broken, messy people. But in the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus loved them till the end. That Jesus went to the cross to die for you and for me. He loved us perfectly. With all that he was, he bore the entire wrath of God that you and me deserve for our rebellion against God. He did it on our behalf as our substitute, that we might be justified before God, so that when you and I die in all of, in all of our messiness, and one day we stand before God, anything but having lived a perfect life, that God can actually say, not guilty or justified by faith, because who you trust in is who God sees in judgment. And if you're gonna spend life trusting in you, then that's who God's gonna judge. If you spend your life trusting in Jesus, despite your failures, then that's who God judges. And Jesus already paid that price on the cross. The church isn't perfect, but it is profoundly loved. And that includes you, and that includes me. And one of my favorite scriptures, we'll close with this, says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I know one of the great frustrations of many is they feel like they gotta hide and clean up the mess before they walk in the doors. We don't expect that of you here. People spend so much time trying to look a certain way that they don't have the energy left to actually deal with their issues. You bring the mess, 
Jesus is the one who works to cleanse and wash and sanctify by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we do that in the context of not a you, but of a y'all, because the church is a bride, and Jesus is committed to that bride. And if you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that means you got him, and he's not going anywhere. Bow your heads, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that for the people in this room that need to do something today. There are people in this room who need to confess something today. There are people in this room who have been hiding something and need to say something today that you would equip them with the boldness and the humility to do that. Lord, for those in this room who don't know you and haven't entrusted themselves to you, Lord, we pray, God, that you would impress yourself upon their hearts that in calling you Lord and Savior, Lord, that they would know and receive as they believe in you what it is to be a part of your kingdom. Heavenly Father, help us to continue exploring and navigating and challenging and reflecting upon what this thing, commitment and covenant, looks like. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.